Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. This is Sirius XM, Progress After Dark. I'm John Fugelsang. Welcome to Tell Me Everything. We hope you are great. If you're live, we're at 866-997-4748. If you're just listening as a podcast, you can always write us at johnfugelsang.com or at the show's Facebook page. We'd love to hear from you guys as well. We love getting your tweets when we're live. We read them on the air. The more uh, vicious and cunning, uh, the more likely we'll read them. Chris Household is our executive producer. He has been for quite a while now running this show from South Carolina. Um, and not just because he's a good family man. He's been down in South Carolina. He, he likes Confederate cosplay on weekends, and we like to indulge him what he needs. Uh, the grown-up in the room is Thea Harper. She is our associate producer running this thing from Brooklyn. I come to you from Manhattan. And tonight, what a show we've got. We are celebrating the 40th anniversary of the band Madness releasing the single Our House with Bob Woodward of the Washington Post. I just, I wrote those words and it sounded so good. Um, No, those two things are completely independent, but uh, it is the 40th anniversary of Madness releasing Our House and Bob Woodward, the legendary iconic journalist who cut his bones 50 years ago with his scrappy partner, Carl Bernstein, in the Washington Post with a reporting feat that brought down a president and spawned the book and film All the President's Men. Bob Woodward, who for decades has interviewed presidents, heads of state, written challenging journalism that questions those in power, regardless of their political affiliation. All of that was building up to Bob Woodward finally getting to be on our show. I know. A lot of people made it here before Bob Woodward. It's 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 true. We got to Tyler Perry before we got to Bob. But tonight, it's all repaired. Uh, he will be with us, and you don't want to miss it. His new book is his first audiobook, and it's the 10 hours of interviews he did with Donald Trump um, over 20 different occasions. And they're fascinating. I'll tell you something. Print doesn't do it justice. It's horrific and bob woodward is doing something he's never done before he is sounding the alarm about a president he is doing this as an act of journalistic activism and it's really worth listening we discuss all the controversies you don't want to miss it also andrew seidel joins us to talk about his essential new book american crusade how the supreme court is weaponizing religious freedom not to be missed we're going to be taking your calls all night long at 866-997-4748 i do want to play a little bit of uh, joe biden today he was at the uh, cop 27 climate summit in cairo and he promised uh, this is a one that the u.s will in fact meet its climate goals for the year 2030 we're proving that good climate policy is good economic policy it's a strong foundation for durable, resilient, inclusive economic growth. It's driving progress in the private sector. It's driving progress around the world. And the sum total of the actions my administration is taking puts the United States on track to achieve our Paris Agreement goal of reducing emissions 50 to 52 percent below 25 levels by 2005 levels by 2030. Let me just take a moment to emphasize how meaningful it is that I can say that. I introduced the first piece of climate legislation in the United States Senate way back in 1986, 36 years ago. My commitment to this issue has been unwavering. Today, finally, thanks to the actions we've taken, I can stand here as President of the United States of America and say with confidence, the United States of America will meet our emissions targets by 2030. Boom. 
I think Biden is always at his strongest when he's talking about climate change and the science behind it. Here, one more quick clip. Here's the president. He wants to help the developing world find ways to bypass fossil fuels. Permanently bend the emissions curve. Every nation has needs to step up. At this gathering, we must renew and raise our climate ambitions. The United States is acting. Everyone has to act. It's a duty and responsibility of global leadership. Countries that are in a position to help should be supporting developing countries so they can make decisive climate decisions, facilitating their energy transitions, building a path to prosperity and compatible with our climate imperative. If countries can finance coal in developing countries, there's no reason why we can't finance clean energy in developing countries. Boom, boom, boom. We are proud to bring you these extended clips of Joe Biden speaking at the climate summit in Cairo because the corporate news media won't be bringing you clips of these speeches. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm John saying This is Sirius XM Progress. We're at 866-997-4748. Let's get to some of your calls. Bob Woodward joins us in the next hour. Let's go to say hi to Rachel in L.A. Hello, Rachel. Rachel, can you hear me? Are you on mute, Rachel? My Are microphone you? doesn't. I'm so sorry. Can you hear That's me? That's okay. Yeah, a lot of a lot of, oh, lot of people have that problem. No worries. Hi. I got to get a new microphone. Oh, you um, sound good now. Sorry. <laughs> um, I was gonna say I'm. It's weird, like to not feel so threatened by democracy. You know, by the end of democracy, like we made it. I'm happy. It's, it we, feels we, weird not to be democracy. <laughs> yeah, I wouldn't say democracy is alive and well, but it survived to see another day. Let's put it that yeah. way. Yeah. It's like we can breathe for a moment. um, I agree. It's a very nice feeling. And you know what? Can I say something? We deserve it. Uh, People who have been gaslit for months and months thinking this was going to be the end of democracy, thinking that no one cared about Roe v. Wade. My God, the media narratives. Everyone can be forgiven for being exhausted from these midterms. Um, Democrats and moderates and people who voted Democrat uh, deserve to enjoy the moment. Yeah. Um, and I wanted to tell you, I'm sorry that I didn't, I, I did want to double back about sexy liberal. I want, I, oh, for yeah. some reason I thought I'd talk to you in between when the last time I did and I didn't, but like, it was so much fun. And, um, the meet and greet was really, really, everyone was so nice and everything and Frangela and all these, and you, you were very popular. <laughs> you were like mobbed by the meet well, and greet. Well, you know what happens. How, how Sparks gets all the attractive women and I get all the damaged Catholics. They flock to me. So those are my people. But yes, uh, well, it was <laughs> the meet and greets are really like, fun. I, I had this problem where, like, the lines for the meet and greet—they just look like they're part of the party. And it's in the very beginning part. I, I had gone outside and I went back inside and I see Glenn Kirshner. So I just—that's mm-hmm. all I saw. So I like made a beeline up to him. I'm like, "Hi, I know you from Instagram." And he's like looking over me. He's like looking at me like. And I look back and there's like this line. <laughs> people <laughs> waiting just and I'm like oh my god did I just cut the line and I I kept doing that like by accident all night long like that's okay the, it's a party those Stephanie meet and greets show. are very fun those meet and greets are very fun but it is a lot of lines that's true yeah and they don't look like like I was screwed up by them <laughs> but um and then I want to tell you this fun thing that I've been like keeping under wraps because I didn't know Please. whether I could talk about it but I got permission today 
I watch MSNBC all day long and on Deadline White House, Nicole Wallace, and he's on a lot of shows. Is this man from Ukraine called Igor Novikov? Yes. He, you know, he does his reports. I see them mainly on her show, but he, you know, he's always reporting about how their life is in Kiev and he's got a family and he's really kind of a cool dude. Like, I feel like you guys would be friends because he's into like music and comedy and blah, blah. And so one day, a couple months ago, he says to her, um, you know, she's asking how everything's going. He's like, well, my 13 year old daughter wants to be in fashion. He's like, and if you know any people in fashion that want to like help guide her, send them my way. And I saw that and I found him. And I've been doing sessions with his 13-year-old daughter. Oh, how nice. And it, it is really nice. And, and, you know, it's really, you know, it really sucks that they have to do that. I mean, at least today was a day, like, kind of a victory day for them, I guess, because they took Kersan back. Oh. Yeah. You didn't know That's that? It. Well, uh, no, you know I didn't know that. But what's amazing is that they waited. Russia knew they were going to pull out of Kersan. But they waited until after our midterms were over so it wouldn't make Biden look good right to the end. Who knows if anybody got shot because they stayed a few extra days in Kherson just to try to not make Joe Biden look good. I mean, Biden remarked on it. Biden remarked on it at his press conference the next day. Like they waited until after the midterms were done to pull out. It's a huge victory for the P it's a huge victory for the people of Ukraine and it's a victory for everybody. I'm sorry. The people of Ukraine and the Mm -hmm. voters of America really, really did my heart good this week, this year. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So, yeah. And I had sent him some clips like a couple of weeks ago, you had Keith Price on, you guys were talking and you kind of was, it was kind of looking like, you know, we didn't know what was going to go on with the election. And Keith Price was saying something like, they're probably over there thinking, you know, well, we're here and we're asking and like, are yeah. you helping or not? And I sent him that clip like in real time because I wanted him to hear, you know, how people were talking about that and thinking about Oh, nice. Nice. Um, well, thank you, Rachel. Yeah. Thank you. you. And thanks for coming to the Sexy Liberal Show. I really, really appreciate it. It was great to see you there. And by the way, uh, Rachel knows what she's talking about. This was a good one. Um, Stephanie was hilarious. Rob Reiner joined us on stage, and he was such a force of nature. Frangela brought the house down. I, you know, I meant well. Um, If you didn't get to see the show, you can still see it. And by the way, are you ready to laugh after all these midterms? Why not watch the special? It's available on demand until uh, January 1st. You can go to meathook.live and look up the Stephanie Miller Sexy Liberal Save Democracy Tour. It's only 20 bucks, or go to sexyliberal.com. I promise you, it is the best political comedy special you will watch all year. Thank you very much for the call. Um, we're going to take a quick break because we have to. We'll be right back with the great Bob Woodward. He's had so many honors in his career, and they were all appetizers leading up to his appearance on this show. And I'm so pleased to welcome Andrew Seidel, whose new book, American Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom, you will want to buy after hearing this conversation. We'll be right back. Look around. You can find cars like these on Auto Trader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on Auto Trader. Just you wait. Auto Trader. I am so excited to welcome our next guest. I'm going to try to not talk all over him because I, I couldn't keep my mouth shut reading this book. Because I was like, this, I'm reading this book and I'm saying, damn right. God damn right. Yes. Yes. It's that kind of book. It's a book for smart, moral people. Not that I'm one of them, but hear me out. Andrew Seidel is an author and attorney. He's defended the First Amendment for over a decade in court and out of court. After over a decade of constitutional attorney work and director with the Freedom From Religion Foundation, he joined our good friends at Americans United for Separation of Church and State. He's the author of the uh, critically acclaimed book, The Founding Myth, but his new book will blow the roof off your house. It is called American (laughs) Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom. He dives deep into the debate on what religious liberty really is, the Supreme Court's role in that crusade, and how their crusade is related to the Crusades. It's an extremely (laughs) moral document. It's a great pleasure to welcome Andrew L. Seidel to the show. Hello, sir. Thank you so much for having me on, John. It is a true pleasure. Thank you. I love your book. A couple of points I'm gonna I'm gonna tug on your coat about as we go through, but you know this book does not pussyfoot around about these crusaders and their threat 
to democracy, their threat to liberty, their threat to what made mm-hmm. Christianity special in the first place. For those who haven't yet read your book, what is this crusade we speak of when we talk about these crusaders? So religious freedom has long been a shield. It's been this defense that's defended the minority against the tyranny of the majority. It's, it's defended us all against yes. government overreach. Right. And, and never in our history has it been a license to violate the rights of other people or to harm others. But but this packed Supreme Court collaborating with a well-funded, powerful network of Christian nationalist organizations, Christian nationalists, not Christian organizations, right. is working to change that. And, and these crusaders, they really are weaponizing religious freedom. And for the last decade, in case after case, the court has been reshaping the First Amendment from that protection into a weapon that conservative Christians can wield to injure other people, to violate their rights and to impose their religion on us all. So so that's the crusade. And American Crusade tells the true stories behind those blockbuster cases that are rewriting our Constitution. And I hope it does so without the legalese and jargon that too many lawyers love to hide behind. Oh, no, it's it's great. I mean, it's it's uh, extremely academic, but it is also accessible enough for a mook like me to follow along. And, and you know, you're right. I mean, what are the words on the Supreme Court? Equal justice under law. Your book is about this historic, deeply funded network of Christian nationalist individuals and judges and organizations. I mean, billions of dollars, a, a shadow network that, as you say, is, is weaponizing the, the the religious freedom aspect of the First Amendment. And mm-hmm. it's incredible that that is something that's supposed to protect all of us. But time and time again, I call them evangelical supremacists because they keep wielding the law to try to help their club, not Americans at large. Absolutely. And you're right. I mean, you know, those words that are etched onto the edifice of Supreme Court tell us that we have equal justice under law, but but we don't. And we didn't in a lot of the cases that I recount in American Crusade. And and that is because this court and these crusaders and the evangelical supremacists, they don't understand religious freedom as a universal freedom the way that we do. They understand it as a conservative Christian privilege. And that's the alarm bell that American Crusade has has been ringing, that, that we think of religious freedom as this equal right, but the court is deliberately changing that. Exactly. Now, there's some folks listening who will say, well, wait a second, freedom of religion, that, that matters, right? That's, that's for all of us. That's one of the cornerstones of United States culture. How is what the right wing is going for different than what we were raised to believe religious freedom is? It's such a good question. And, you know, one of the things that I found striking when I was writing this book is that when religion and the law collide, the questions that are raised are actually like really simple to answer. And we think of them as really complicated. And there's a lot of misinformation and disinformation out there, especially around these cases. But one of the things that I that I noticed was that these are really not hard questions to answer. Yeah. And, and we've been able to do that as a society and as a culture and with a court of law for centuries, for decades. And one of the things that I tried to do was synthesize the three basic lines that the court has used and that we have used to decide these cases. Uh, and, you know, I, I mentioned that I tried to shun jargon when I was writing this book. And, you know, mm-hmm. I creatively re- refer to these as lines number one, lines number two and lines number three. You know, and, and people need to try hard to keep up with me here. I want to talk about those lines. Yes, please. Okay. But so what I do is I lay out the lines and then I show how this court has warped, not just the lines themselves, but also facts and reality to rewrite those lines. Yes. That's what I want to ask about. Let's let's cover the three lines because they're really sums it all up. The first line, I believe, is, um, as you put it, that we we distinguish between belief and action. Right. Your your right to believe is inherently American, your right to act on that belief is not. Yeah, your right to believe is absolute. And in fact, it's probably the only absolute right that we have under our constitution is, is the freedom of thought. But your, your right to act on that belief is not. And so I actually, I opened the book with a few stories of, of drivers who let, quote, Jesus take the wheel. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they're, they're literally doing this. They are letting go of the wheel and putting their foot on the accelerator and going down the highway and, and thinking that Jesus is going to drive. And now, they're actually free to believe that, 
But but we all agree, and even the Crusaders agree, that the civil law can step in at some point and say, well, that's not okay, right? We, we can fine them for violating traffic laws. We might take away their license. You know, we, maybe we'll even send them to prison if they, if they really hurt somebody. So belief is unlimited, but your right to act on that belief is not. And Which one of the things we're seeing... Please. Well, one of the things we're seeing is the Supreme Court trying to change that. And, and that's part mm -hmm. of the crusade is if you're a conservative Christian, you know, one of these evangelical supremacists, your right to act is absolute. Yeah. I mean, that's what keeps coming up for me with the book. It's really not about anything you would actually read in the Bible. The Bible's not full of where we can put crosses or private school vouchers or gay wedding cakes or football coaches that want to make kids pray. None of that actually appears anywhere in the Bible. What you're talking about is, well, supremacy, about about mm -hmm. a privilege for the right kind of conservative Christian gets a privilege over everyone else. It really is about elevating a very narrow slice of Christianity, which has little to do with what the Nazarene talked about, above Christianity, above law itself. Absolutely. And I mean, and, and that really is, you know, that brings us, as, as you were going to say, to that second line. And, and so yes. if, it's, if, it, if it's clear that the government can step in at some point, well, well where is it clear? And the, the, the answer here is also like really simple. And it gets to what you're talking about. And it's, it's where the rights of other people begin. Yes. And, you know, there's, there's that old legal adage that your right to swing your fist ends at the other guy's nose. And it's the same thing. Your right to exercise your religion ends where the rights of other people begin. Religion mm -hmm. is not now. And it has never been a license to harm other people or infringe their rights in any way. And, and that's a pretty easy line for us to draw and one that we'd agreed on for for a long time until this Supreme Court came along. You're right. Although it has been a reason to feel good about yourself historically while you were infringing on the rights of others. But we'll get to that. I mean, your your third line is, I believe, the the separation of church and state. Absolutely. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's pretty simple, too, and it's been overcomplicated. You know, our government has no religion to exercise uh, and nor may government officials like that football coach you mentioned abuse their power, their government power and government resources to promote their personal religion. It's a pretty basic line. Unfortunately, you know, this is a, a right, a protection that we've taken for granted for a really long time. Uh, and we are about to get a real world lesson in what it's like to live in a country without the separation of church and state. And one of the things that I'm so proud of is, is the work that we do at Americans United for separation mm -hmm. of church and state at AU.org. I know you've been a great friend of the organization and, and we've been saying that what we really need is a national recommitment to the separation of church and state. Absolutely. I mean, I think we're already in that curious hellscape and I think we've kind of been in it for quite a while. And I want to, for example, let me ask you about that case back in 2010, that Christian cross that had to be in a million acres of public land. It got a bit of attention mm -hmm. at the time. It has kind of been forgotten compared to other cases like Dobbs. But that's a case that you wanted to focus on in particular. Let me ask you why that one? A million acres of public land, and they tried to find a way to make it that you could put a cross on this public land, which, according to my read of the Constitution, you can't do. And your reading would be correct, Sean. You make a great lawyer. Uh, I mean, you know, I mean, th this case for me was was really fascinating because uh, it, it signals the start of the crusade, really, really, the, or the acceleration in the in the final decade that we've seen this push to warp the legal definition of religious freedom. So this this involved, as you said, a cross in the Mojave Desert, uh, in a million acres of public land, and and the courts did say, hey, you can't do that. You can't put a Christian cross on government land. You can put it up on private property, put it on a church. You know, there's a church on every street corner. Go find a church that wants it. That's fine. And what we saw happen instead was the U.S. Congress transferred one acre, actually a portion of an acre under that cross to a private group yeah. for the purpose of keeping that cross up. And, and actually, the land would revert back to Congress if the group, this private group, ever decided to take the cross down. So ever took have, the cross down. <laughs> yes. I mean, it's, I'm laughing. It's not funny. I, I don't know what else to do at this point. But it is. Uh, so it's, see, a, it's a farce. It's, it's this sham where they said, is. hey, let's completely crap on the Constitution and we'll create this little pantomime to pretend this violation is not a violation. Exactly. And the Supreme Court 
upheld that that pantomime, that sham. And in doing so, it announced this crusade. And and really the, the crusaders, these legal groups that make up that billion dollar shadow network that we've been talking about, you know, groups like Alliance Defending Freedom and the American Center for Law and Justice and Liberty Council and First Liberty Institute, you know, that this like Orwellian world salad, word salad of, of groups, you know, they, they heard the message and then the floodgates opened and then they filed lawsuit after lawsuit and, and they stoked this fear and they raised billions of dollars. So these crusaders then set up these cases and then the ultra conservative justices on the Supreme Court come over and knock them down. Now, I can only imagine what it was like for you emotionally to have this book done, get the galleys and then Dobbs happens. But um, what, what's amazing to me in reading it is that, you know, I, as much as I would like to have Dobbs included here, and it certainly is included, even though it was before the ruling came down, you really trace all of this to mm. Brown versus the Board of Ed, which I think is just a profoundly historically smart and moral thing to do. I mean, there's so much that traces back to the Christian led put um, the right wing Christian led push to keep our schools segregated. How was that the genesis of so much of what we're witnessing today in the Supreme Court? It's such a great question. And it really is something that I I thought was so important to explain to readers. And and you're, you're, I, I do have to touch, you're right. An update for American Crusade was always gonna be necessary with a book like this because <laughs> right, like the, the, the Crusade is, you know, it's all, it's not a historical fight. It's it's an ongoing war that's been accelerating. Mm-hmm. Um, so I knew I was gonna have to do an update. And, and for people who are wondering, yeah, there's already an update on my website that you can read for free when you're done the book. So there's, yes, there's more, but you're right. You know, a lot of this traces back to the attempt to desegregate our public schools for the, for the when the, our court actually got something right and, and was the court that we think of as this progressive bastion uh, that defends the rights of the downtrodden. And you saw this organized opposition to desegregation and to racial equality uh, that really found its home uh, and, and created a lot of the fights that we're seeing today. Things like school vouchers and school choice traced directly back to this fight. Uh, mm-hmm. The abortion the abortion fight traces directly. I mean, abortion was selected by a group of racists who wanted to maintain segregated schools and a segregated society and knew that that was too politically unpopular. So they had to select a different issue. They, they chose topic. this as the wedge issue. Yeah. And, right. and so, so much. Of by the, by the way, seeing, to that point, to that point, we just were talking yeah. about how Jerry Falwell waited five years. He didn't give a speech about abortion until five years after Roe had been decided. Falwell was a notorious segregationist throughout the 50s Mm -hmm. and 60s, built whites only schools, defended apartheid. And yeah, there was this big schism we don't talk about where the fundamentalist Christian right in this country realized after the assassination of Martin Luther King, they couldn't get away with the white supremacy anymore. And abortion was a way to have this presumed virtue and really try to design the courts to serve a narrow slice of the white American population. And they told us about their strategy. I mean, there's that that infamous Lee Atwater quote, which I include in the book, where, where he essentially lays out this strategy. Uh, and, you know, it goes from overt, explicit racism to these more nebulous things like school choice and these these economic issues that, that we're seeing still talked about today, which are really just the, this mask for this same fight dating right back to Brown versus Board of Education. Yes. So I'm curious, let's talk about Dobbs. I mean, obviously, it's Mm -hmm. got its roots in the religious right and the Federalist Society picked these three judges we say Trump picked. But you go deeper into how it completely violates the separation of church and state by imposing one very, very uh, selective religious viewpoint Mm -hmm. on the entire country through the courts. Absolutely. Uh, And there's this great moment in the oral argument of that case where Justice Sonia Sotomayor, she asks the lawyer for the state of Mississippi, she says, how is your interest anything but a religious view? And the state has no answer because she's right. Laws, laws banning and restricting abortion have always been about imposing this one narrow conservative version of Christianity on everyone else. And in part because of what we just talked about, right? Because this is part of a a political crusade to retain the power and privilege and status of a group that is seeing their their demographics, you know, really on on the wane. And this is what Sotomayor was arguing to the court that, uh, to to the, the attorneys and to her fellow justices on the court that 
one narrow religious viewpoint is being imposed on all right. of us. And I think we, we see, you know, we see a lot of linguistic gymnastics that hop that, that happen around the abortion debate and, and politicians and, and religious leaders, uh, you know, try to adopt thing uh, euphemisms. And you actually you can see this in Alito's majority opinion in that case. You know, he begins and ends with religion, but he talks about morality instead of religion. Yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, so, I mean, you know, the reproductive freedom is to a much larger extent than we've ever been willing to discuss religious freedom. As uh, my, my boss, Rachel Lazar, likes to say, reproductive freedom is religious freedom. And I say, you know, in this book, you know, reproductive freedom requires that third line that we talked about already. It requires the separation of church and state. Absolutely. And I'm a big fan of Rachel, by the way. She's done our show a few times, and I think she's brilliant. One of the areas where— she's awesome. One of the areas where you and I might disagree, and I'm a big fan of Chrissy Stroop, and she and I have had this debate many times, I accept that these people are Christian, but I I think it's important for civic-minded folks to call out the fact that this agenda is not, that you can go through the holy book, and at no point does Jesus ever drive the gay wedding cakes out of the temple. I, I never understood why media <laughs> figures couldn't say to Mike Pence, show me in your holy book where Christ commands you to deny goods and services to gay taxpayers. And the same with abortion. I mean, I know they're Christians, and, and calling mm -hmm. them fake Christians is a no-true-Scotsman fallacy. But if I say I'm in a Rolling Stones cover band, and we never play anything the Rolling Stones wrote, <laughs> am I really in a Rolling Stones cover band? It may just be a semantic argument, but they get a lot of mileage by calling themselves Christian, and I'm just kind of on the side of uh, pointing out that they're not. It's just a label, right? <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think it's I think it's an important argument for other folks to make. I think it's less important in the religious freedom arena, and especially in in uh, the, the actually in front of a court of law. Um, I do think there's a there's a time and a place for questioning the sincerity of a lot of these religious beliefs, and I tried to to delve into that in some of you the sure chapters did. in this book, like in the, the Hobby Lobby chapter. Mm -hmm. No, I, I think part part of it stems, I think, um, from an idea that that's more of a cultural idea that that to be a Christian is to be a good person and vice versa. And I think that that idea is persistent. And I think it's a little bit problematic in this arena. I think good people are good people. And I think that Christians are Christians. And if, if we conflate those two ideas, it encourages people to do what exactly what you're, you're protesting, totally get it. which, yes, which is just adopting that label um, to, to cloak their bad behavior. Um, and I, I think it's also true that, that Christians can be bigots and authoritarians and bad mm -hmm. people. Most are not. Uh, and there are many Christians out there, and unfortunately, they're not the focus of my book. You know, yes. but there are many Christians out there who are fighting for true religious freedom. Um, you know, there's there's a the a Unitarian minister who was arrested for giving food and water uh, to immigrants who are coming yeah. across our southern border, for instance. And one of the things that's fascinating to me about those cases, John, is that they're, they're they tend to be much clearer legally and much cleaner, and they almost always involve helping other people which is exactly the opposite of what I'm talking about in the cases in this book, which involves these, these conservative Christians, the evangelical supremacists, harming other people. So, so I actually, I agree in a sense, I think it's actually crucial for kind and empathetic uh, and, and Christians who care about truth and justice to stand up against the conservative Christians who are, who are fighting this crusade. Um, I just think it's crucial that they stand up not just against the theological Absolutely. label. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, I, just, I, yeah. I had to find one area where I'm not totally oh, giving no, you the no, way I, the entire time because I love this. I'd so love much. to disagree. It's more it's more fun. Yeah. So so, I mean, you know, obviously we're finally hearing Christian nationalism enter the common lexicon. And I'm curious, you know, what can be done about this completely unchecked supermajority of right-wingers right on the Supreme Court. I mean, I look forward to reading Katanji Brown-Jackson's dissents for the next couple of decades, <laughs> but what can be done to diffuse this threat? Well, I mean, first of all, I'm, I'm thrilled to see Christian nationalism finally entering the mainstream discourse. You know, my first book, which came out in 2019, was called The Founding Myth, Why Christian Nationalism is Un-American. Uh, and I, I remember uh, talking to a room full of religion reporters uh, in September of 2019 and telling them that Christian nationalism is an existential threat to a government of the people, for the people, and by the people. And it was just just crickets. 
and you know now now we are seeing that people are finally waking up to that threat. I think January sixth had a lot lot to do with that. And, and you know, we saw Christian nationalism attempt to violently overthrow a free and fair election. Yes, sir. And I do try to offer real world solutions at the conclusion of American Crusade. And I, I think one of the best solutions that we have um, is is to expand the Supreme Court. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I think that's actually a must. And of course, there's a prerequisite for that. We have we have to muster enough political power and convince enough uh, politicians uh, to to muster the political will to do that. And that means voting. That's and, right. You know, I like to tell I'm, I like to tell people, especially now, you know, voting is literally the least you can do. Literally. You know, I mean, it means it voting and then staying engaged after Election Day is what it means. And that's ex- ex- that, exactly <laughs> that's kind of hard for yeah. Americans. Um, it, it is. It is. But it shouldn't be. What do you think are the biggest issues we're going to see this court doing next, be it marriage equality, be it public schools, be it contraception between consenting adults? I think all of those things are not only on the table, but on the chopping block. You know, the, the end of Roe was just the beginning, unfortunately. Uh, there is no amount of power or privilege that will satisfy these crusaders, where they will kick back and recline and relax and say, ah, finally, we can be done. If, yeah. if they are going to stop, it is because we stop them. And again, the majority of Americans, including the majority of Christians, disagree with them. The majority of Christians mm-hmm. are not opposed to marriage equality. They don't want to criminalize abortion rights. So obviously they need their politicians. They need their Supreme Court, but they also need to win at those pesky elections. Can you tell us a bit about the role Christian nationalism plays in voter suppression? I mean, it plays a pretty massive role in voter suppression. Uh, I mean, and again, you know, this is what you saw, I think, on January 6th, when the voter suppression didn't work, uh, it it turned to violence. Um, And, you know, I I wrote a report with a couple of really phenomenal experts on Christian nationalism that cataloged the role that Christian nationalism played in that insurrection. And it piqued the interest of the January 6th committee. They actually asked me to adopt my portion of the report and submit it as written testimony, which I did. Uh, I mean, it really is. Look, what we're talking about here is, uh, is trying to find a way to solidify minority rule, right? I mean, the conservative white Christian American status as the dominant group has been threatened and on the wane for a long time, that they're losing the culture wars, right? They are losing the privilege and the deference, which they believe they are due. Uh, you know, I mean, go, go listen to Justice Alito's gloating speech in Rome uh, from back in That's July right. afterwards. I mean, it's a perfect example. And, and we know that when the dominant group or caste in a society feels threatened or feels left behind by circumstances, we know that it reacts or overreacts by seeking a way to retain that status. And so that's why we are seeing them turn to Christian nationalism, turn to violent insurrection, to vote suppression, uh, to these so-called strong men like Donald Trump. But but that's also why we are seeing them work to weaponize religious freedom. Because the crusade, yeah, the crusade at its heart is it's in a quest to remake that protection into a weapon for maintaining that group, that dominant group's status. That's what we're seeing. And as you point out, the case of the football coach who wanted to let the kids pray on the field, even though kids didn't feel comfortable, (laughs) kids are free to pray at sporting events anytime they want. Kids are free to pray in school anytime they want. They need to have the control of it. That's what it's all about. It's not about your connection with God. It's about their control of the events in the culture. It elevates man to playing God using the government sort of uh, as being his accomplices. Yeah, you know, I like to say that conservative white America is dying a slow demographic death. And what we are seeing right now is it's rebelling against that death. They are raging against the dying of their privilege. And so they declared Mm. war. And American Crusade tells the story of that war. And as you point out, it's not about land. It's about control. What is the best way for our listeners to keep up with you and your work? Because I want you to come back 10 more times and talk about this. Oh, I'd love to. I'll come back anytime you want. I mean, first of all, join AmericansUnitedAU.org. Uh, that's one of the best things you can do to also fight back right now. And then I am Andrew L. Seidel uh, on all of the social things. That's my website as well. Uh, and if you have follow-up questions, please hit me up. I'm happy to answer on any of those. Absolutely. And the book, once again, is American Crusade, How the Supreme Court is Weaponizing Religious Freedom. Andrew Seidel, thank you so much for joining us. I love your book. It's really powerful. It makes a great gift. And uh, I'd love to strap Congress into chairs and force them all to read it. Thank you so much for joining us. (laughs) Thank you, John. It was a pleasure. We'll be right back. 
The most unprecedented aspect of modern times may be our unprecedented abuse of the word unprecedented, but we've never seen threats to democracy coming from within the United States like this, and we've never seen threats to journalism from a president like we've heard from uh, Donald Trump. We just this week heard Trump in Texas pledging to force journalists to name their sources by threatening them with incarceration and prison rape. That's where we're at right now. So I use the word with full awareness of what how loaded it is when I say this is an unprecedented work from one of the most nonpartisan journalists in the world. This is a book about threats to national security and democracy from a man whose work led to the resignation of a president and a revolution in the power of journalism. We could talk all day about Bob Woodward's great works from All the Presidents and Men through Wired. I'm a big fan of Veil and Shadow myself. His new audiobook, The Trump Tapes is a real departure for him, creatively and personally. He has released raw audio of a score of interviews he did with Donald Trump in 2019 and 2020. Now, these talks were originally arranged to inform Mr. Woodward's second book on the Trump presidency, Rage, which came out just before Trump lost his re-election bid. But Bob Woodward's never released an audio book like this before, and he's never used a book tour to warn Americans about a politician and a movement. And I've certainly never heard him use terms like seditious conspiracy. It is a great pleasure to welcome the great Bob Woodward. Hello, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I got to tell you, I grew up with a history teacher, dad. Your books were all over his shelves. I've seen you enrage liberals, like your book on Bill Clinton. I've seen you enrage conservatives. You've always maintained an independence, and no one can accuse you of activist journalism, except people who might not like whatever you're covering. But this is really a departure for you. You're not just promoting the work, you're warning the world and the American voters. Uh, yes, I, I think so, or uh, attempting to. Uh, what happened, I used these, as you pointed out, for the 2020 book Rage, and then earlier this year, 2022, I went back and listened to the audio, and I was floored by how different it is to hear Trump and his concussive hammer voice and the word on the page. And my wife, Elsa Walsh, and my assistant, Claire McMullen, we looked at this and my God, passed it on to Simon & Schuster, my publisher, and they said, we've got to publish this as an audio book. And uh, in the course of doing this, it's eight hours of Trump, and it covers the coronavirus, covers mm -hmm. uh, all the issues that he was presented with. But I kept learning things and learning about the chronology of my discovery that he actually was warned January 28th. This is just at the beginning uh, of the virus. It wasn't in That's the right. United States really at this time. And I was able to spend two months going back to Trump's national security advisor, his deputy national security advisor, calling the deputy Matt Pottinger at home, calling Robert O'Brien, going seeing him at the White House, and really able to set that scene of the warning that they gave Trump. It's, it's the starkest thing I've ever yeah. seen. And uh, once you realize that Trump experienced that. He confirmed it to me mm -hmm. and then he denied for months the seriousness of the virus. And it turns out it turns out it's criminal what he did. If he had just shared with the public what he knew in the most muted fashion. And when they gave him this warning, it wasn't muted. It, that's it, right. They said, well, it's going to be like 1918 when 350,000 people died in the United States from the Spanish flu pandemic a century earlier. Now we have 1.1 million people who died of this virus. Yes. And your coverage of COVID with him is one of the most compelling parts of the book. For me, what what's amazing is that, you know, these clips of Trump talking about COVID and 
him admitting that he knew the virus was airborne. You did release that clip a couple years ago during the same week that Donald Trump was encouraging Americans to fill the pews on Easter Sunday, 2022. And then you put out there that he knew it was a deadly airborne virus at the time. Now, I know that in 50 years, you've never ever released raw interviews or full transcripts of your work. But I have to say, it's amazing listening to the to the work on one level to hear your process, which I want to ask about a bit because your creative process is something that has never been on view like this. But also one thing that really comes through in the interviews, this is morally important work to you, isn't it? Well, people have suggested to me, I've got, I've become awfully exercised about this and I have just because it is a lay down case of a president receiving top secret information in the president's daily brief. And I think Trump thought, well, it's so top secret, it's never going to get out exactly what O'Brien and Pottinger told him. But he encouraged them to talk to me. And uh, they really were his agents. And I kept calling Pottinger at home as I was, uh, you know, and I kept for two months, what really happened on January 28th? And it's a, it's the scene of the most informed people telling the president, as Robert O'Brien did, this will be the biggest national security threat to your presidency. Not Russia, not China, not Iran, but the coronavirus. And yes. to not act on that, not even set up a plan and a pol- and then go into uh, denial, concealment. And in the end, uh, I, I think it's a crime. I think if if he he had just told the public the truth or even a version Indeed. of the truth rather than the version of. Uh, the lies he told, oh, it's going to go away. Don't worry. And it's amazing hearing him discuss it so blithely, whether we hear him testing out on his son, Baron, how to blame the entire thing on China, hearing him tell you that he's got it totally under control. I mean, there's a really shocking moment where he, he's telling you his plan to deal with COVID. And it's completely in relation to what it means for his reelection a hundred some days later. I, I can hear the surprise in your voice throughout those conversations. Yes, this was in July 2020, uh, 140,000 people had died in this country, and uh, it was the final long call with him. And he said, don't worry about the virus. We have it under control. And I said, under control. And he kept insisting, and you just go through the audio of that conversation, and he literally says, don't worry. I have 104 days, 104 days. Well, that turns out that's election day. And he said, oh, if I put out the plan sooner, people wouldn't remember it. It it, is if it's something to sell. It's something to execute and act on back in January, let alone uh, in July. So this this is. As I have concluded, this is, it puts not just Trump, but the presidency in moral freefall. That the president has this responsibility. It's not literally in the Constitution, but it is in the spirit of the Constitution and our hundreds of years of history that the president, when there's a crisis, has to take charge yes. and fled. I mean, it might not be in the Constitution, but it is in the oath he takes. And there's this great moment in the conversation you had with Donald Trump on April 5th of 2020, where you share with him this list you've made of the 16 things you think he needs to do to get on top of the virus. And in many ways, it reminded me of all the accounts we heard from his various advisors and cabinet members trying to cajole him with facts and reality. And when the call's over, we actually hear your wife, Ms. Walsh, saying aloud in the background, if you should be talking to the president like that. Did you ever have any concerns during the recording of these that you might have been um, sitting in an activist position or being a bit too strident rather than just 
playing the role of the journalist who's a pen writing down the responses. Well, so what happened is in the two weeks after he shut down the country, I talked to Dr. Fauci, Dr. Redfield, who was head of CDC, other experts. And prior to that, I thought the book, you know, you're working on a not a plan, but what are the events that are defining what is significant? And I thought foreign policy was going to be uh, the most significant thing. It was obvious when he closed down the country that it was the virus, uh, death rates were accelerating. And so when I got from Fauci and others, this is what he needs to do. And all of the doctors told me he's not listening. Trump will not pay attention at the coronavirus task force meetings. And I knew I could talk to Trump. And our agreement was I could call anytime, he could call anytime. And so for 15, 20 minutes, I pushed these six items, I'm sorry, 16 items on. This is what the experts say. What are you going to do? And uh, I pushed it as hard as I could. And uh, Miss Walsh, as you call her, I, my wife Elsa, said, uh, was really angry at me. Said, yeah. you're out of line here. You're not supposed to yell at him. You're not supposed to tell him what to do. And my response, which is on the tape, is, but we're in a different world, sweetie, which is what <laughs> I call her. And what Trump do? Nothing. 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 And again, that exchange is part of what makes this such a, a departure from your normal work. And again, I just I find the work so thrilling in seeing how you're pushing yourself, not just creatively, but but also morally. And, and obviously, a lot of reporters have taken a lot of heat for writing books about Trump. And as you know, they've been accused of withholding certain newsworthy nuggets, keeping them secret for their books. I think what you're doing is showing how hard it is to do journalism and be an historian at the same time. And you've taken your share of heat for this. But so many of the controversial clips I remember hearing at the time you released clips of Trump talking about how he saved Prince Mohammed bin Salman's ass and covering up a murder. You released the tapes at the time of him admitting he knew the virus was airborne. It seems like, you know, you did this in a way and you did it for a reason, not just to sell books, but to make the maximum impact you could with this release during a season when democracy itself is on the line. Yeah, but what you have to face as a reporter, and having done this 50 years plus, is that you never have the whole story. And even if you have all the information, I had all of these tapes, you don't fully understand the import of it. And you can actually learn from what's in your file cabinet. And in this case, it's the tapes of these interviews. And so if you're on that trajectory of learn, try to figure out new ways to communicate with people. It is admittedly experimental to yeah. lay all of this out. But uh, then I look back at the 21 regular books I've done, beginning with All the President's Men with Carol Bernstein, and they were all experiments. They were all kind of, oh, we're going to write about Watergate and we're going to write about how we reported it. Well, that wasn't the plan, but it became the plan because Watergate exploded and all we could do is write about what we knew. And what we knew is what we did. <laughs> That's hmm. always rule in journalism, write about what you know best, if you can. And you know your own experience best, and that's what we did. So this is pushing it, but it's not something I'm going to sit and say, oh, I, I figured it all out. I didn't figure it all out. Uh, that's the problem. That's the uh, self-discovery in all of this. And I think it pays off. I mean, the headline for Slate's review is listening to all 11 and a half hours of Bob Woodward's Trump interviews might be the only cure 
for Trumpism. It becomes apparent early on that had this merely been a book, it would have blunted the impact and the power of hearing this clumsy con job that he's trying so hard to push on you. It's amazing seeing how he's not responding to you because you're a great journalist. He's responding to you because you're a celebrity. And to hear him try to flatter you and compliment you and also trying desperately to impress you while debating with you, I don't think that ever could have come out on the page. And it didn't. And in the book Rage, uh, all of these things are quoted from the interviews. Yeah. There are nine pages in Rage of quotes from all of this. But what happens, in the listening and it's not just the denial and the concealment, but particularly on North Korea. I, for instance, I ask him, uh, well, the CIA says Kim Jong-un, the thuggish criminal leader mm -hmm. of North Korea. The CIA says he's stupid. And Trump, oh, I hope you write that. I said, well, well why do you think he's smart? And then Trump says, and again, it's the intimacy and the self-certitude that he is basking in. He says, yeah. oh, I know. I, only I know. Oh, it's amazing. Only I know. <laughs> and, you know, what are you trying to do? Drive Kim to the bargaining table? No, no, no. It's instinct. It's yeah. instinct. And our presidents, all of us have instincts, but... Uh, you can't drive a high-risk negotiation with somebody like Kim Jong-un, who's got dozens of nuclear weapons and the missiles and the system of hardening them and hiding them and concealing them and dispersing them. I mean, the intelligence agencies and the Pentagon we're going nuts about this. Yeah. The Secretary of Defense Mattis was sleeping in his gym clothes. That's right. So he could get up for an emergency conference call, a top secret call they have if it looks like Kim has launched a missile. And uh, anyway, the, <laughs> the nightmare he put the people closest to him professionally, what he put them through was, again, part of this uh, ego trip, part of this only I know, uh, mm -hmm. at one point saying, you know, everything mm -hmm. is mine, Bob. Yeah, he believes he owns it. I, I find it amazing that he actually gave you a poster size print of a picture of him and Kim Jong-un, like you're going to put it on the wall like it's a boy band poster. And I also find it equally amazing that he's threatened on Fox News to sue you, calling you very sleazy, uh, not because anything's inaccurate in this work. It's his own voice, but because he's claiming the tapes are mine and he should be compensated because they're being sold right now when <laughs> you're the one who actually made the tapes. Congratulations on him threatening to sue you. It seems like... Uh, <laughs> That the work has achieved many moral objectives. I have one last question for you, though. You, you say Trump reminds us how easy it is to break things you do not understand, democracy and the presidency. Do you believe after all this time you spent with him that Trump has any any affection at all for democracy? Does he understand democracy enough to resent it? Well, he he overlooks it because this idea, everything is mine, that includes the presidency and the problem here is that I, I think he, I think in this election just now, the midterm election, I think he was rejected in a very significant way. I think people Indeed. understand better and realize that, you know, well, maybe this is not the guy for the presidency. Uh, people are starting to look Trump supporters, what's the national interest? Do we need this guy in the presidency again? I think you can uh, be a Trump supporter and like him, but, you know, kind of think I like him, but do we need him? Uh, yeah. Does the Republican Party need him? Does the country need him? And I think there's a significant and large movement away from him. Now, don't let's not kid ourselves, there's still tens of millions of people who are 
his supporters. Apparently, soon he's going to announce that he's going to run again. But it's in that context now, not just because of these tapes, because of all the works, uh, books, colleagues of mine at the mm -hmm. Washington Post, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times have done. We have a pretty comprehensive picture of who Trump is. And I think it shouldn't be a popularity contest. It should be who's going to function in my interest as a voter as the president. And that person, the president, needs to be really getting up in the morning and thinking, what can I do for the people? How do I carry out faithfully as the oath of office requires, executing the office of president of the United States? Bob Woodward's excellent and deeply fascinating and chilling new audiobook is the Trump tapes 50 years after all the president's men. I, I got to say, it's it's inspiring and thrilling to see you pushing your own limits in your writing and in your use of technology and media in the service of important journalism. Thank you so much for joining us, sir. Thank you. Thank you.